Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, June 9th, 2022, the 505th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Let's start out today, as always, with a mention of the great American patriot, Mike Lindell, and his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow. You can go to MyPillow.com, enter the promo code REASONABLE, receive up to 60% off items all across the MyPillow store. There's a bunch of buy one, get one free deals, and you will get a free gift when you order. It is Mike Lindell's book. So go on over there. If you want to make your life more comfortable, MyPillow.com, promo code REASONABLE. Now, there will be no normal episode tomorrow. I think that I am going to schedule a couple of the parts of the Who Is At Q series to release as a podcast. So there'll be something to listen to. If you haven't listened to that yet, I will eventually record the rest of that series and put it out. Uh, Patrick Gunnels has been reading them, but he's not up to number seven yet. And I really want to get number seven out there. So I'm going to put us on a track to getting there. So those will be up tomorrow and I will be back as usual on Monday. Monday is the day 
where the podcast will begin only showing up on Substack for the first 24 or maybe 48 hours. I have to play with that a bit, see what I think is going to be best, and then I'll do some A-B testing, see how it works, see how people respond. But if you want to continue getting the podcast on time, on the day I release it, go to imyourmoderator.substack.com, sign up for a paid subscription. You can do that for as little as $5 a month. That breaks down to under a quarter per episode. And it will give you immediate access to everything I write right away. And I'll continue focusing more energy toward providing content on that platform for paid subscribers. But as I said, that will be the only way to get the podcast on the day of its release. Henceforth. And while we're on the subject, I would like to extend another thank you to everyone who continues to sign up and make use of that option. I truly appreciate the support. It is necessary for me to keep doing what I'm doing. So I'm glad that you want to help enable that. So let's get started by saying hello commies to some of our neighbors from the north. This is the justice minister in Fidel Castro's bastard son's government. That would be Justin Trudeau, who is 100% Fidel Castro's son. If you don't know that and you think I'm crazy, you can simply look it up. You will find that Justin Trudeau looks exactly like Fidel Castro and absolutely nothing like the man we are told is his father. His supposed parents had a relationship with Fidel Castro. Justin Trudeau's mother is on video talking about how sexy Fidel Castro is. And she visited Cuba about the time she would have had to get pregnant with Justin Trudeau. His parents were famously swingers. His dad had been a lifelong playboy with no children. Did he father Justin Trudeau around 60 years old? Maybe enough of Fidel just rubbed off so Justin Trudeau came out looking like Fidel Castro? Is that what happened? No, no, no. We have to take the very serious view that the story these communists told us is definitely the right story, despite the obvious physical evidence right in front of us. And for those who still think this is crazy, I just posted an article from Medium that breaks down all the research on this. It is called, Of Course Fidel Castro is Justin Trudeau's Dad. Nobody has debunked anything. And of course, nobody has debunked anything because it's pretty obviously the truth. But we don't need to go on about Fidel Castro's bastard son, Justin Trudeau, the communist dictator from the North. We can talk about his justice minister, David Lametti, who said this. Obviously, uh, tailor uh, the provisions so that uh, so that. Um, uh, it could withstand a, a court challenge. You don't have a, an absolute right to own private property uh, in Canada. Um, it is uh, there are uh, there are steps that are taken when expropriations happen at, at whatever level of government, and we'll be sure to stay with. So Canada's justice minister just said to a reporter that you do not have an absolute right to own private property in Canada. What does that sound like? 
Well, that sounds like the 2030 agenda of the World Economic Forum and the United Nations. In Canada, you will have the opportunity to own nothing and be happy because there is no happiness above owning absolutely nothing. In fact, it's the communist utopia. Everything is shared amongst everybody so that everyone has enough. Now, under a communist regime, you have no market. So you lose the ability to understand what things people want and what things people don't want and how much of those things they need. You don't get the price signals and the feedback. That's why it never works. So you'll get to share whatever everybody gets with everybody else, except it's not quite everybody. It's just people like you. It's not people better than you. There are people way better than us that get to own all sorts of stuff. They get to own whatever they want. They get to go wherever they want all the time too. As soon as they set up the world for themselves, exactly as they've designed. And the thing is, their plans actually require the power to take your stuff if they decide you don't need your stuff anymore, or if you're going to use your stuff to do something they don't want, well, then they can just take your stuff. But hey, that's just a speed bump on the road to progress. Speed bump for them? No, no. It makes their agenda much easier to complete. The speed bump is all of the pain you feel. The harm that comes to you, that's the speed bump. You are the one with the problem. They just drive straight over. But of course, we already knew that Canada was further down the road toward communism than even California, perhaps. So that's not the entire reason why I'm playing this. You might have caught at the end of that clip right there, the justice minister just mentioned the word expropriations. Now, where have we heard that recently? Well, yesterday we were talking about Chesa Boudin and his radical communist domestic terrorist parents. He had real parents who were domestic terrorists, and then he had adoptive parents who were domestic terrorists. And that's not my opinion. That's not me saying that they're domestic terrorists simply because they're communists, though you could make a good argument for that. They're domestic terrorists because they've committed acts of domestic terrorism. And in that article, the word expropriations popped up multiple times because that's what the domestic terrorists called it when they were committing armed robberies. They were redistributing the wealth through violence. And one would suspect that they probably imagined themselves to be a modern day Robin Hood. But no, they're just radical communists and domestic terrorists. And as I was saying yesterday, it's actually important to understand that the evils of the 20th century around the world did not vanish. They weren't wiped off the face of the earth. They merely subsided. The people at the top of those systems remained and had children and kept their ideology going. The ideology has certainly remained. The collectivist ideologies, communism, socialism, fascism, Nazism, all collectivist ideologies, all practiced by the same groups of people. And that lineage lives on. 
it's no surprise that Fidel Castro's son is the head of a Western government. It's no surprise that Justin Trudeau's deputy prime minister, Christia Friedland, is the granddaughter of a Nazi. Nancy Pelosi's dad was a communist and a mob boss. And by all means, go back and look through the history of the Bush family. Check out Prescott Bush. It's not a mistake there are Ukrainian Nazis. It's not a mistake that China is still beset with communism. And the CCP is a full partner of the global communist order. This is a lineage. And it has never stopped. They just occasionally return to the shadows, rebrand, remarket themselves, usually as their own opposite, and then they come back. They infiltrate, they gain power in institutions across the entire spectrum of society. And once they have filled up those institutions with the communist ideology, we reach the point we have reached in this past decade. And now we come to a time where Western politicians are arguing against the right to free speech. They're arguing against the right to self-defense. And they're arguing against the right to own private property. There has never been any point in time as we look back that this ideology has not existed and is not growing. So to pretend that all of this is some conspiracy theory now is absolutely crazy and ignorant of history. Ignorant of obvious connections through bloodlines and relationships that show the interconnection between world leaders and corporate leaders and bankers, the most powerful people in the world. It's actually not hard to see at all. You just have to want to look at the big picture instead of siding with the television and denying obvious facts because they simply can't be true. The TV would have told us if Justin Trudeau was actually Fidel Castro's son, the television surely would have told us. But let's go a little deeper into the communist utopia being built around us. Joe Biden was on Jimmy Kimmel's propaganda hour last night so that they could seem buddy buddy so that Joe would seem lively and humorous. And as the fake president was sputtering along, he said this. I often get asked, look, the Republicans don't play it square. Why do you play it square? Yeah. Well, well, guess what? If we do the same thing they do, our democracy will literally be in jeopardy. Well, I mean, yeah. not a joke. And I, I understand that argument, but also it's like you're playing Monopoly with somebody who, you know, won't pass go and won't follow any of the rules. And how do you ever make any progress if they're not following the rules. Well, you got to send him to jail, uh, you know. There's <laughs> that little box in there. Directly to jail. Go directly to jail. Not a joke. Not a joke. Wait, was it a joke? I can't tell. Joe always says, not a joke, when he's saying something absolutely preposterous, like, we play it square and the Republicans don't play it square. How are you going to get ahead in a system like this where... People oppose you and don't want the thing that you want, even though the thing you want is exactly right for everybody. And everybody would realize that as soon as we force them to try it. 
But I know, I know, Joe is very with it. He is very witty. He's a very funny guy. And so you could tell that he was just picking up on a Monopoly joke. There's absolutely no way they set this exchange up beforehand. And Joe is just rolling with the punches. You got to send your political opponents directly to jail. And under a normal presidency or under an actual presidency even, you might be able to give a real president the benefit of the doubt and just think, oh, yeah, that's a clever joke. You know, Jimmy says, do not pass go. You do not get to collect your $200. You go directly to jail. Except Joe Biden is not a real president or a normal president. He is a fake president who is overseeing a regime of political imprisonment in this country. There are people still in prison without trial from January 6th of last year. And this regime regularly uses the law enforcement apparatus to harass and intimidate and jail their political opponents. Ask Tina Peters in Colorado. She did her job as county clerk faithfully and responsibly by getting a forensic image of the Dominion system hard drives made before Dominion came in and executed their trusted build. And then she got a forensic image made after. And comparing those, you can see the Dominion manipulation and the erasure of election evidence against the law. And for exposing this, she has been continually harassed for almost a year now. And last week, they arrested Peter Navarro. Here's his explanation of what happened. Instead of coming to my door where I live, which, by the way, is right next to the FBI, instead of calling me and say, hey, we need you down at court. We've got a warrant for you. I would have gladly come. What did they do? They intercepted me getting on the plane and then they put me in handcuffs. They bring me here. They put me in leg irons. They stick me in a cell. By the way, just historical note, I was in John Hinckley's cell. They seem to think that that was like an important historical note. Okay, that's punitive. That, that what they did to me today violated the Constitution. And of course, he's right. It is an utterly absurd use of excessive force to punish and humiliate a political opponent who is causing inconveniences by telling people the truth. That is not how a free society is supposed to function. Again, it's the sort of thing where if this was happening in Central America, Latin America, uh, Southeast Asia, countries around Africa, we'd be like, oh, that's a banana republic. They clearly have an illegitimate dictator and they are punishing and harassing their political opponents. These are violations of human rights, but not here, not here. Joe Biden will joke about sending his political opponents to jail. Not a joke, not a joke. But as part of the marketing campaign for the series finale of the January 6th television show tonight, they stepped it up a little further. This is from Just the News. Michigan gubernatorial candidate arrested for January 6th participation. 
The FBI arrested Michigan GOP gubernatorial candidate Ryan Kelly on Thursday. He was taken into custody and had his home searched in connection with the January 6th Capitol breach. The agency is alleging that Kelly was part of the crowd that shoved past Capitol police officers during the congressional certification of the 2020 election results. Though the FBI did not find any evidence suggesting Kelly had entered the Capitol building. The candidate is now facing four misdemeanor charges relating to that breach. The FBI said that in the days following the incident, it received multiple tips that Kelly had been at the Capitol on the 6th. He will appear in court later Thursday. The agency says their investigations found that Kelly consistently waved his hand to instruct the surrounding crowd to inch closer to the Capitol building and the scaffolding surrounding the area that was set up for President-elect Biden's imminent inauguration. Kelly is charged with knowingly entering a restricted area unlawfully disorderly conduct, engaging in physical violence in a restricted area, and committing depredation against federal government property. Wow, so evil. I can't believe he did all that stuff. But the truth is you don't actually need to even defend what Ryan Kelly did or did not do on January 6th. Look at the charges. That is the most serious stuff they can get him for. Is that a violent insurrection? Was he attacking Capitol Police officers? No, of course not. And now he is a Republican candidate for governor in Michigan who has something like 20% support in the Republican primary. And Michigan has already been going after Republican candidates and trying to get them removed from the ballot. There was an issue a week or so ago where they disqualified some of the candidates because those candidates had hired a firm to help collect signatures on a petition to get them onto the ballot. And it turned out that firm was not doing their jobs responsibly. And so all the candidates who had used that firm at all were disqualified. And trying to get candidates disqualified is nothing new either. Mark Elias has been going around the country trying to bring lawsuits against people like Marjorie Taylor Greene to get them left off the ballot by claiming that they participated in an insurrection and are therefore ineligible under the Constitution. Now, those suits have been knocked down, but you can see what they are attempting to do. They are attempting to rid themselves of their political opponents, just as any illegitimate regime does. We pretend that because this stuff is happening in the United States, and the media isn't freaking out about it, that somehow it isn't a big deal or it isn't what it obviously is. It's not somehow okay just because the media has their own story about it, that Marjorie Taylor Greene is actually an insurrectionist and shouldn't be allowed on the ballot. They can make that argument on television. It doesn't mean that that argument holds any weight. It doesn't mean that that argument isn't antithetical to the very nature of this country as described by the founders. None of that matters. It is a real thing that they are trying to do. It is the stuff of illegitimate regimes. If it was anywhere else in the world, we would see that quite clearly and we should see it just as clearly in this instance. Now, sticking with January 6th and the 
primetime series finale of the January 6th television show tonight. There's also this from Just the News. This is yesterday. Trump Pentagon first offered National Guard to Capitol four days before January 6th riots. Memo shows. Now, that claim is something that we have known the entire time. But now this memo is out. Uh, Cash Patel and Chris Miller discussed it on Hannity the other night. And those clips are available in the info stream, t.me slash I'm your moderator. That would have been uh, Monday or Tuesday night. And that'll have the entire interview. The Pentagon first raised the possibility of sending National Guard troops to the U.S. Capitol four days before the January 6th riots, setting in motion a series of rejections by Capitol Police and Democrats that left Congress vulnerable as threats of violence were rising, according to government memos that validate Trump administration officials' long-held claims. An official timeline of the January 6th tragedy, assembled by Capitol Police, shows that a Defense Department official reached out to a Capitol Police Deputy Chief, Sean Gallagher, on January 2nd, 2021, to see if a request for troops was forthcoming. But the offer was quickly rejected after a consultation with then-Chief Steve Sund. Carol Corbin, DOD, texts USCP Deputy Chief Sean Gallagher, Protective Service Bureau, to determine whether USCP is considering a request for National Guard soldiers for January 6th, 2021 event. The timeline reads in the lone entry listed for Saturday, January 2nd, 2021. The following morning, the timeline states Gallagher replies to DOD via text that a request for National Guard support not forthcoming at this time after consultation with COP Sund. And they link to the full police timeline. The rejection came as the Capitol Police Department was beginning to change its assessment, recognizing that the massive Trump rally to protest the November 2020 election results planned for January 6th, 2021, had the potential for violence. Earlier analyses suggested such violence was unlikely and the January 6th event was likely to be similar to the previous million MAGA March rallies in November and December, police records show. And that is a great point. There were multiple massive Trump rallies in Washington and elsewhere leading up to that event, and they were all extremely peaceful, although they were attacked multiple times by Antifa. And so there are videos of violence throughout that period. But the thing the communists just can't wrap their heads around and their supporters can't wrap their heads around is that Trump supporters are not violent. Yes, Trump supporters are the gun owners. Trump supporters will defend the things they care about, but they're not violent. They don't use violence as a tactic. That is exactly what the left does. That is what every communist movement has ever done. And it's worth noting that The people who believe Trump supporters are violent are the same people who are currently throwing all of their support behind the Azov Battalion in Ukraine and denying that the Azov Battalion's lineage does directly link to the Nazis of World War II. That lineage, my friends, is right there as well. It is traceable. It is obvious. And they still celebrate those same World War II Nazis. For instance, 
Capitol Police had determined that as of December 16th, 2020, there was no information regarding specific disruptions or acts of civil disobedience targeting this function. But by late December, Capitol Police internal emails and documents show information began flowing in that some groups expected to attend were talking on social media or fringe websites about tactics like blocking tunnels leading to the Capitol. On January 3rd, 2021, just hours after Gallagher rejected the Pentagon's initial offer, the Capitol Police issued a new and darker security assessment to its commanders and executives and to the two political appointees in Congress responsible for security, the House and Senate sergeants at arms, the timeline shows. Due to the tense political environment following the 2020 election, the threat of disruptive actions or violence cannot be ruled out, the new assessment declared. Supporters of the current president see January 6, 2021 as the last opportunity to overturn the results of the presidential election. This sense of desperation and disappointment may lead to more of an incentive to become violent. Within 24 hours, Sund had changed his mind and began seeking permission from the political powers surrounding House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer to deploy the National Guard as a preventive measure on Monday, January 4th, 2021. The Capitol Police official timeline provides the most succinct summary of a series of events around Sund's request, some of which have been disputed and at times misreported in the news media. COP Sund asks Senate Sergeant at Arms Michael Stenger and House Sergeant at Arms Paul Irving for authority to have National Guard to assist with security for the January 6th, 2021 event based on briefing with law enforcement partner and revised intelligence assessment. The timeline recorded COP Sun's request is denied Senate Sergeant at Arms and House Sergeant at Arms tell COP Sund to contact General Walker at D.C. National Guard to discuss the Guard's ability to support a request if needed. Walker, according to the police timeline, told Sund that if the chief could change minds and eventually get the approval from Capitol officials, his team could deploy 125 troops quickly. While Sun's requests were being delayed and denied, the Pentagon was forging ahead on January 4th, 2021 to get Trump to formally sign authorizations to deploy in advance of January 6th, 2021, as many as 20,000 National Guard troops if Congress asked, according to the interviews Just the News has done with then-acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller and his Chief of Staff Cash Patel. We went to the Capitol Police and the Secret Service and law enforcement agencies and Mayor Bowser days before January 6th and asked them, do you want thousands of National Guardsmen and women for January 6th? Patel said in a detailed interview earlier this year, they all said no. Why did we do that? The law requires them to request it before we can deploy them. And the DOD inspector general found we did not delay. We actually prepared in a preemptive fashion, which is what we do at DOD. Patel told Just the News on Wednesday night that the police timeline validated the account he has given to Congress. The Capitol Police timeline shows what we have been saying for the last year, that DOD support via the National Guard was refused by the House and Senate sergeant at arms who report to Pelosi, Patel said. Now we have it in their own writing. 
days before January 6th. And despite the FBI warning of potential for serious disturbance, no perimeter was established, no agents put on the street and no fence put up. As word circulated around the nation's capital that Sund wanted National Guardsmen deployed, District of Columbia Mayor Muriel Bowser wrote a preemptive letter to Miller and other Pentagon and Justice Department officials asking that troops not be deployed unless the Metropolitan Police Department approved, citing an incident in summer 2020 when troops were deployed at Lafayette Park near the White House during a civil disobedience. Bowser wrote in her January 5th, 2021 letter that the earlier episode, quote, caused confusion and could have become, quote, a national security threat with no way for MPD and federal law enforcement to decipher armed groups. Yes, I'm sure that would have happened. To be clear, the District of Columbia is not requesting other federal law enforcement personnel and discourages any additional deployment without immediate notification and consultation with MPD, if such plans are underway, Bowser wrote, adding she believed her police department was well-trained and prepared to lead the way to ensure January 6th unfolded safely. In the end, that did not happen. Capitol and D.C. police were overrun by rioters, and the guard wasn't deployed until after violence spiraled out of control, causing a mad scramble to send troops that had been offered and rejected days earlier, the records show. The evening before January 6th, the FBI's Norfolk, Virginia office sent an explicit warning to some high ranking officials in the Capitol Police that there was new intelligence that some planned attendees were thinking of storming the Capitol and targeting lawmakers for violence. An online thread discussed specific calls for violence to include stating, be ready to fight. Congress needs to hear glass breaking, doors being kicked in, and blood from their BLM and Antifa slave soldiers being spilled. The FBI bulletin read, relaying the exact words intercepted by intelligence. Get violent. Stop calling this a march or a rally or a protest. Go there ready for war. We get our president or we die. And yes, what a common notion among Trump supporters leading up to January 6th. This sounds like something the FBI went and wrote itself on 4chan or 8chan or the Donald.win. Remarkably, the Capitol Police's own after action report concluded that FBI intelligence warning was not shared with Sund or incorporated into the operational plan sent to police commanders and officers preparing to man the front lines. Well, how did that happen? Son's not the guy over there anymore. He left his job in the wake of January 6th. He was left out of the loop by the FBI after he had reversed his original decision and said, yeah, maybe we do need the help. Very, very interesting. How does something like that happen when the adults are in the room? But with the January 6th event mere hours away, Capitol Police, aware they had no National Guard backup, asked the Capitol architect to make some last minute changes and eliminate a bike rack that initially was going to be used as a perimeter barrier. The architect obliged, but viewed the police request as ill-advised internal emails show. This seems absolutely illogical. Architect Brett Blanton wrote a colleague just 15 hours before the violence began. It removes a zone of defense. If you find out a logical impetus for the change, let me know ASAP. 
I'll make calls to the board if necessary. So what do we see here? We see the Trump administration acting responsibly, preparing for the National Guard to be on the ready so that if there was any issue, they could be called in. Now, the Democrat communists and their uniparty helpers like Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney are pretending that all of what happened on January 6th was a grand conspiracy by Donald Trump to incite a very violent insurrection at the Capitol and maybe hang Mike Pence or kill some congressmen. And that would overturn the free and fair results of the free and fair election, the most safe and most secure election of all time. And then Donald Trump would be the president. That is what we are told by our betters, by the media, by the Democrat Communist Party, by the January 6th committee. That's what was happening. A grand conspiracy for violence to change the outcome of a free and fair election. Trump incited all this with his actions leading up to January 6th, the repetition of the big lie. And then he incited the crowd that day with his speech where he said, (laughs) we will peacefully and patriotically walk down to the Congress and make our voices heard. How could he? So this grand conspiracy that Trump was setting up, tell me, commie, how that works If Donald Trump was also the one responsible for preparing the National Guard to be called in and had up to 20,000 National Guard troops at the ready, the decision not to call them in was not Donald Trump's. It was Nancy Pelosi's with help from Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer and maybe Kevin McCarthy. I might add it was Muriel Bowser's decision as mayor of D.C., Why would Donald Trump have prepared the National Guard, 20,000 soldiers, to come to D.C. if what happened that day happened exactly as Trump wanted because he was trying to incite an insurrection? The Trump administration was told repeatedly that the D.C. police, the Metropolitan Police and the Capitol Police had it all under control. There would be no problems. You've got the best of the best out there. They have the bike racks around as a perimeter that gets taken down. We can see the Capitol Police on video that day opening up the stanchions, making it so that people actually can go in. Capitol Police opened the door to the Capitol. And by the way, some of the intrusion onto restricted ground charges they're talking about take into account that original perimeter or areas that Capitol Police waved people into. The Capitol Police were basically just guiding them into their net. Oh, here's the area where we can arrest you and call you domestic terrorists. Come on over into that. And of course, we know about Antifa, uh, Asian provocateurs being involved. John Sullivan, who was known BLM Antifa, he went in with Jade Sacker, a photojournalist. The two of them appeared that night on CNN. John Sullivan was in this event among the rioters. He has some of the film of the Ashley Babbitt shooting, and he was selling that footage to the state propaganda networks. 
The entire January 6th story, as told by the media, is utter nonsense. And it's going to get worse tonight. Apparently, they are attempting to try to tie Donald Trump to a conspiracy with the Proud Boys to incite the very violent insurrection. And of course, they're going to try to take advantage of that moment in the debate where Donald Trump was repeating the words of Chris Wallace and Joe Biden when he asked the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. And that video is about as relevant as the very fine people on both sides lie from Charlottesville. All you have to do is actually watch the tape of the event and you will understand how dumb the commie narrative about both of those statements is. But they're going to go hard on that and they're going to try to make it look like Donald Trump has family members that disagree with him. They're going to go present members of Donald Trump's administration who are not MAGA at all as authorities telling the truth about what was really going on that day. But nothing they put out tonight will be true, will be relevant, or will be watched by anyone. They're going to promote the hell out of it on social media. They'll probably get a news day out of it tomorrow, and then it will be absolutely nothing. And the truth is, between now and when they start broadcasting this thing in six hours or whatever, there's a good chance more news might come out that is going to make their whole story look even sillier. This is going to go down as the worst series finale in the history of television. Now, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago when we got the news that Nina Jankowitz was going to resign from her position on the disinformation governance board. And a lot of people on our side of things gave themselves pats on the back. Ah, we exposed her and now she's gone. The disinformation governance board is no more. Well, that wasn't true. They replaced her with Michael Chertoff like two days later, and the disinformation governance board just kept on chugging. That's not some piece of their program they're willing to do without. The censorship and propaganda operation is the most important part of their agenda. Every other bit of the agenda relies on them being able to convince the stupidest people in the American public that what the Democrat Communist Party is doing will actually be helpful. They can't just go ahead and give it up. But we have found out a whole lot more about what they intended to do. And on Tuesday, Senator Chuck Grassley, along with Senator Josh Hawley, wrote a letter to DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Dear Secretary Mayorkas, Department of Homeland Security information obtained by our offices through protected whistleblower disclosures raises serious concerns about DHS's recently paused disinformation governance board and the role the DGB was designed to play in DHS counter disinformation efforts. Documents show that, contrary to your May 4th, 2022 testimony before the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, the DGB was established to serve as much more than a simple, quote unquote, working group to, quote unquote, develop guidelines, standards and guardrails for protecting civil rights and civil liberties. In fact, DHS documents show that the DGB was designed to be the department's central hub, clearinghouse, and gatekeeper 
for administration policy and response to whatever it happened to decide was disinformation. Welcome, my friends, to the burgeoning communist utopia. And because everything in communism exists in a false reality in the bizarro world, it is pretty easy to see the communist utopia as nothing more than, in reality, a dystopia. Empowered communism is exactly how dystopias form. Specifically, documents describe a prominent DGB designed to, quote, serve as the departmental forum for governance of DHS policies, plans, procedures, standards, and activities pertaining to what the government refers to as mis, dis, and malinformation, or MDM, that threatens homeland security, as well as the department's internal and external point of contact for coordination with state and local partners, non-governmental actors, and the private sector. Internal DHS memoranda also show that in practice, the DGB was expected to function as a, quote, coordination and deconfliction mechanism convening to discuss threats, assessments, response actions, and engagements as often as warranted. According to the DGB's charter, DHS-wide or component-specific proposals for funding related to efforts to counter MDM were also required to be, quote, appropriately coordinated with the board, including in advance of submitting any final funding proposals. So that is actually a pretty broad scope. Again, they're designed to serve as the departmental forum for governance of DHS policies, plans, procedures, standards, and activities pertaining to what the government refers to as mis, dis, and malinformation that threatens Homeland Security. So the Department of Homeland Security, created under the Bush administration in the aftermath of 9-11, is going to house the disinformation governance board that is going to coordinate the whole of government response to anything they deem mis, dis, and malinformation. That is absolutely in every way the ministry of truth as we described it at the time. And I mention that because it's important to remind the communists that the very facts here in black and white from their own documents completely defy all of the fact checks and debunkings that were being popped out all over the place just a few weeks ago. While DHS components apparently have established methods for defining and analyzing disinformation and would continue to carry out all of their normal operational functions under a DGB, it appears that the DGB was equipped to review evidence presented by representatives of the various components and guide DHS counter disinformation efforts. A September 13th, 2021 memo prepared in part by Robert Silvers, Undersecretary for Strategy, Policy, and Plans, and according to whistleblower allegations, one of two intended co-chairs of the DGB, outlined specific policy recommendations that should guide DHS efforts to counter disinformation. The memo states that DHS's, quote, role in responding to disinformation should be limited to areas where there are clear objective facts, end quote. 
It is unclear how DHS defines clear objective facts, and it is unclear what safeguards, if any, DHS has put in place to ensure that individuals charged with determining which issue areas have clear and objective facts are not influenced by their own ideological and political beliefs. And that is natural to assume. There is no way that the government gets to decide what constitutes clear and objective facts, particularly not a government whose own illegitimacy is a clear and objective fact. While the memo boldly asserts that the department's counter disinformation mission, including the choices as to what issue areas to focus on, must not be politicized and must be protected from perceptions of politicization. Some of the examples of disinformation given in the memo relate not only to foreign disinformation, but issues that have been at the heart of domestic policy discourse for the past several years. For instance, the memo refers to, quote, conspiracy theories about the validity and security of elections and, quote, disinformation related to the origins and effects of COVID-19 vaccines or the efficacy of masks. You got that? So these are critical areas where the government gets to determine what the objective facts are and then how to handle anyone disputing those clear and objective facts as a threat to homeland security. Let's be clear. The election was stolen. There is clear, obvious and overwhelming evidence of fraud all across the country. If you don't believe that, it's because you haven't looked or because you yourself are a traitor to America. All you have to do is look. The evidence of election fraud is everywhere. Masks don't work. Masks have never worked. The entire scientific community knew that before 2020. Masks physically cannot work. And that has also been known. That has also been admitted by the CDC, who then began encouraging wearing N95 masks. Because the other ones don't work at all, and the N95 ones just don't yeah, really work. If masks work, why didn't they? Why is there no proof that masks worked? But we're not allowed to say that either. We're also not allowed to question the efficacy or the origin of the COVID-19 vaccines. Which means... That despite the COVID-19 vaccines not preventing infection, transmission, serious illness, or death, and despite them causing grave harm, including death, we are not allowed to relay the facts of any of those things either. And we're also not allowed to question where the vaccines came from, which really means we're just not allowed to question the pharma companies. Given the significant coordinating role the department envisioned for the DGB, the consequences of installing Nina Jankowitz, a known trafficker of foreign disinformation and liberal conspiracy theories, as the DGB's first executive director, would have been a disaster. Jankowitz once asserted that the Hunter Biden laptop should be viewed as a Trump campaign product. Content on the Hunter Biden laptop has since been verified by multiple major news outlets. In 2016, Jankowitz also sent out multiple tweets spreading the now debunked claim that President Trump had a secret server to communicate with Kremlin-linked Alpha Bank. In 2020, 
Jankowitz tweeted that a podcast by Christopher Steele, the author of the debunked Steele dossier containing Russian disinformation, had provided, quote, some great historical context about the evolution of disinfo, end quote. So this begs the question. If the former executive director of the DGB is incapable of determining what is and is not disinformation, how could the DGB ever have expected to function properly under her leadership? We believe that Congress and the American people require full transparency regarding the DGB's creation, as well as the role Jankowitz would have played had she remained in her position at DHS. Toward that end, we are releasing documents we have collected during our investigation as an attachment to this letter. Documents also suggest that the department has been working on plans to operationalize its relationships with private social media companies to implement its public policy goals. For example, we obtained draft briefing notes prepared for a scheduled April 28th, 2022 meeting between Robert Silvers and Twitter executives Nick Pickles, nice name, head of policy, and Yoel Roth, head of site integrity. The notes are marked TBC, and it is unclear whether the scheduled meeting actually took place. The briefing notes frame the planned meeting between Silvers and the Twitter executives as an opportunity to discuss operationalizing public-private partnerships between DHS and Twitter as well as to inform Twitter executives about DHS work on MDM, including the creation of the Disinformation Governance Board and its analytic exchange. Got that? So they're setting up a direct channel between the Disinformation Governance Board and Twitter and other social media platforms so that they can direct the platforms on what they must take down. They are directly controlling the censorship of the American people. According to whistleblower allegations, Nina Jankowitz may have been hired because of her relationship with executives at Twitter. Consistent with these allegations, Silver's briefing notes state that both Pickles and Roth know Jankowitz. A recent DHS strategy document further discusses efforts to, quote, empower partners to mitigate MDM threats. The document states that in certain cases, federal, state, local, tribal and territorial or non-governmental partners, quote, may be better positioned to mitigate MDM threats based on their capabilities and authorities. DHS theorizes that by sharing information, DHS can empower these partners to mitigate threats, such as providing information to technology companies, enabling them to remove content at their discretion and consistent with their terms of service. Collectively, whistleblower allegations and the documents we've reviewed raise concerns that DHS could be seeking an active role in coordinating the censorship of viewpoints that it determines, according to an unknown standard, to be MDM by enlisting the help of social media companies and big tech. The DGB's charter also specifically states that the DGB should serve as the department's internal and external point of contact for coordination with state, local, tribal, and territorial partners, the private sector, and non-governmental actors regarding MDM. So they can form relationships with basically everyone to coordinate their censorship on a massive scale. 
The First Amendment of the Constitution was designed precisely so that the government could not censor opposing viewpoints, even if those viewpoints were false. DHS should not in any way seek to enlist the private sector to curb or silence opposing viewpoints. It is therefore imperative for DHS to provide additional clarity regarding its policies and procedures for identifying and addressing MDM, as well as its efforts to operationalize public-private partnerships and the steps it is taking to ensure that it does not infringe on the constitutional rights of American citizens. In order for us to better understand the role of the DGB and DHS's efforts to counter disinformation, we ask that you respond to the following no later than June 21st, 2022. Has DHS at any point in time asked or suggested to Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, or any other social media executives that they should censor, flag, add context to, or remove any social media posts that it believes to be disinformation? Has DHS at any point in time asked or suggested to Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, or any other social media executives that they suspend or ban the accounts of individuals believed to be promoting information it believes to be disinformation? Please provide all documents, including all written and electronic communications, memoranda, and organizational documents related to the DGB from the point that DHS first considered establishing a DGB until the present. Please provide all documents, including all written and electronic communications and memoranda related to Nina Jankowicz's selection as executive director of the DGB. Please explain why in your public statements and testimony before Congress, you have not fully explained the key role that the DGB was designed to play in coordinating among DHS components and engaging the assistance of the private sector. Please explain how DHS defines MDM and how DHS decides whether a given news story or other piece of information fits its definition of MDM. Please identify who exactly is ultimately responsible for making this determination. Please explain the criteria DHS uses when deciding whether to spend taxpayer resources addressing a particular news item or narrative that it has classified as MDM. Please describe all safeguards that DHS has put in place to ensure that its efforts to counter the spread of disinformation do not infringe on Americans' constitutional right to free speech. Did DHS Undersecretary for the Office of Strategy, Policy, and Plans Robert Silvers meet with Twitter executives on April 28, 2022? If so, please provide a summary of topics during the meeting. And please provide what DHS means by the phrase operationalizing public-private partnerships. So that letter lays it out pretty clearly. And the documentation attached is interesting as well. Near the bottom of that documentation is the text for a bill that is called Strengthening Resilience Against Disinformation Act of 2022. And I want to skip down to a section called Rumor Control Program to Counter Misinformation, Disinformation, and Malinformation, and specifically Section B, which is Functions. In administering the Rumor Control website, the director shall establish partnerships with relevant public and private sector stakeholders, including the following. Technology companies that own or operate internet-enabled communications platforms commonly used to spread misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation. 
non-governmental and civil society groups, including civil rights and civil liberties organizations with relevant subject matter expertise or stakeholder relationships to identify and respond to misinformation, disinformation and malinformation and ensure such response is designed to effectively reach and raise awareness among communities or demographics targeted by such content. State, local, tribal and territorial governmental agencies, relevant federal agencies, including sector risk management agencies as appropriate. So once again, take note of all of these different entities that this government disinformation board plans to form working relationships with, okay, directly to the tech companies, all of the tech companies, the social media companies will be involved, the legacy ones, at least in the process of censorship with the disinformation governance board. Then we have civil rights and civil liberties organizations with relevant subject matter expertise or stakeholder relationships. So that's basically any non-governmental organization. I would imagine this also includes think tanks, all of whom are going to be ones funded by the global communists. And then they get right down to state and local and tribal. And the communication and instruction goes both ways. These entities are supposed to let the government know what's going on and what they need as far as the help of the disinformation governance board goes. And the disinformation governance board will also let all of those entities know what the illegitimate regime in Washington needs. So imagine this process in its fullest bloom. Imagine they actually got everything they wanted. One of the things that is listed specifically that they mean to censor is quote unquote disinformation about elections. And so you look around the country at the corrupt Soros AGs and secretaries of state, people like Brad Raffensperger and Jenna Griswold and Jocelyn Benson and literally everyone in California. And you see what they've been attempting to do over the past couple of years. You see how they operate with the media constantly on television, just clearly and blatantly lying. And you see that even with local officials, people who have tried to stop audits in Arizona. For instance, what happens when those people want to avoid having to face the truth? They want to prevent a narrative from ever actually reaching the public. Like look at the little county commissioner election that happened a couple of weeks ago in Georgia, some Democrats and the election results were completely wrong from the machines completely wrong. How would that get out there with a disinformation governance board in full operation from the local level to the federal level, the national level, they could have these stories censored each and every place they appear, at least on legacy social media. Thank goodness we have places like Truth Social and for now, Telegram and Getter and Gab and Rumble and whatever else. But imagine you have some citizens in a small community, they realize something is going terribly wrong with their election. They have the evidence. Maybe it's video, like the kind of video that exists in 2000 mules of illegal ballot box drop offs, 
or maybe it's the videos we used to see of USBs being palmed and pocketed at election centers around the country. Those people wouldn't be able to show those posts to their friends and neighbors, and those friends and neighbors wouldn't be able to share those posts and have more people around see them. The Disinformation Governance Board is giving itself the power to stop those posts at every single level, something that the federal government might not be aware of on their own, like the phenomenon of people realizing that the vaccines aren't safe and effective and are actually quite dangerous. The federal government on a national level, they can figure that out, but they might miss some information exposing a local election fraud scheme. No worries. The local people have a direct line into the disinformation governance board. They get Nina Jankowitz on the phone and they say, hey, Nina, we're going to need you to sing a song to Twitter and convince them to get rid of this information. And in this letter, we can see this disinformation governance board, this ministry of truth taking shape in a way that is so much greater than what a lot of people imagine this thing to be. It's no longer the idea where the illegitimate administration is only shutting down national stories on a smaller scale that they don't like. Now it is fully comprehensive of the entire country. Every organization that helps them achieve the global communist agenda gets to decide what the citizens are and are not allowed to say, and they get to immediately run to the federal government so they can enforce it. This is the banana republic we can observe around the world. This is the formation of the dystopia that every empowered communist movement eventually leads to. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. Don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. 
it's hot.